This episode is brought to you by Vanta. Vanta's trust management platform helps you quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, and more. Learn how by watching Vanta's on-demand demo at vanta.com WSJ. Coming up on the Money Beat podcast, betting against the U.S. dollar has been a pretty winning strategy so far in 2016. Will it continue? And Lending Club's CEO and founder is out. What could possibly have happened at that company? We'll let you know. This is Money Beat from the Wall Street Journal. Now from our studios in New York, here are Paul Vigna and Stephen Grosser. I like that, Grocer. I like that music. I am in favor of our new jingle. I don't know what to say about it. I'm, I'm pretty much, um, yeah. It gets you, right? You're bouncing in your chair a little bit now. It's... As long as it doesn't come with you continuing the intro. Uh, into... Welcome to Money Beat. And we have new guests on, and they're now quickly on. becoming less impressed well, with you this, know what? this operation. You know, I have to say, Ira kept us waiting today because he's a little bit late. So fire safety training, fire safety training. But you're a little late. Very Ira. important. You'll Ira Yosabashvili. One day, Ira Yosabashvili. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be following Ira out of the building. Ira and Chelsea Delaney are here today with us. They wrote the abreast of the market column. <laughs> I, I, I tried that hard, Paul. <laughs> I literally had to look down and make sure. Because, look, we have a breast of the market, heard on the tape, ahead of the tape. We heard on the, different, heard you know, on the street. Heard on the street. Ahead of the tape. They get me mixed up. We they can get tell. me mixed up. So, a breast of the market, Ira Yosef Bashvili and Chelsea Delaney wrote it. They are in the studio with us today to talk about it. And basically, the, the topic, folks, is, is the dollar and what the dollar is doing to the markets, how it's sort of a fulcrum for the capital markets, really, right? And risk. And risk. The dollar and risk. A seesaw. Yes. So, yes. Somebody jump so, in, please. <laughs> um, so one of the one of the points of the story was that Morgan Stanley found some data, or they ran some data, and it showed that you know the inverse relationship between the dollar strength and appetite for risk was at like a twenty year high. Um, so basically, it was just showing that you know the dollar has weakened a lot this year. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the first quarter was the worst three months for the dollar in like three months, and that sort of set up the riskier assets like emerging markets and some commodities to sort of stage a comeback. Yeah. Did, did, this, did this kind of sneak up on people at some point? Did they just not notice the dollar was slowly losing steam? I, I or, or has that, this been well telegraphed? Yeah, I think that a lot of people uh, in regards to the markets are having the exact opposite kind of year that they uh, expected or planned for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, you know, when you walked into you know 2016, I mean, I think everyone essentially expected the dollar to get stronger, and um, you know the euro and the yen to weaken again. So, um, yeah, people people had expected you know the Fed to continue to raise rates. I mean, people were expecting right. for rate increases, and then you know starting February March, Jenny Ellen signaled a much more cautious tone on that and that's thrown a lot of people especially in the currency market off because they didn't expect it and even after even after the fed you know started signaling that it wasn't going to be raising rates as fast as people thought they've still been thrown off pretty much every time yellen talks people are like oh right that she's a lot more dovish than we thought but one of the interesting things, though, is like yes, the Fed's not raising rates, but on the same uh, token, you still have 
Japan and Europe playing with negative rates. Why why is the sort of market still, you know, seeing the dollar strengthen against those currencies? Weaken, right? Or weaken, yes. Yeah. Sorry. Well, I think I think a lot of it was that expectations for the Fed to raise rates had just risen, had, had driven the dollar so high. So a lot of it has just been pulling back that rally that had been driving the dollar. Um, so I think that explains a little bit of, of like why why the euro and the yen are still higher. Yeah. You know, I, I know that the the capital markets are all interrelated in a way. I know we have different markets, different traders, but they're all kind of interrelated. But I, I know in the stock market, <clears throat> excuse me, folks, not not that we're stock traders, we report on the markets, but even even us, our focus tends to become very narrow, and we just think stock, 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 stocks. But it, it's not really like that. I mean, every asset has some relation to the others. But the dollar, is the dollar first among equals? I mean, we think it's, we talk about the stock market all the time, but the, the Forex market is m- massive. Well, the, the dollar really, you know, at least in this, this year, has been the thing that is allowing many of these rallies to happen. So when the dollar gets cheaper, it's good for oil and other commodities because they're priced in U.S. dollars and it's easier for foreign investors to buy them. Uh, it's good for emerging markets because a lot of these countries have debt denominated in dollars. So when the dollar gets cheaper, it becomes easier for them to service that debt and so on. But the big fear is, I think, you know, as a stock market guy, you'll probably know this saying. I think Warren Buffett said that when the tide comes, uh, go when the tide goes out, you see who's been swimming naked, right? Right. And the big fear is that a lot of these rallies are not built on solid fundamentals. Fundamentals. A lot of these emerging markets, you know, right now we're seeing Brazil and Turkey, how vulnerable they are to political risk. Mm-hmm. Why is oil at $45? Yeah, that's a great right. You know, they, they, they haven't been able to reach an agreement on Doha and people just blow it off and oil is at $45, $46. People don't see a fundamental reason for that. So one of the ways that that could all reverse is if the dollar decides to strengthen and people decide they don't want to be in those markets anymore with a strengthening dollar. I mean, you know, this is back to what Chelsea was saying. This this really does seem like a story about, in some ways, the Fed, and that, and we're at a, like a sort of very interesting moment right now, where the Fed is, you know, got rid of that language in its statement earlier in the year, and we're getting closer and closer to probably another rate increase. How much is that? Concerning to people in the forex market, who are you know sort of, you know, or or anyone betting on this on these rallies to sort of continue, it, I, you know, it, it's concerning. Some people are arguing that it should be more concerning than it is mm-hmm. because people have reduced their uh, rate increase expectations very radically, and there is a majority, a, a minority of people that are saying, you know, I don't think this is what exactly the Fed meant when uh, when they said we'll be more cautious. Yeah. Now, I mean, a lot of Fed speakers, in fact, I mean, uh, you know, the head of the Boston Fed was out saying, like, the the market continually underestimates our, you know, sort of willingness to act in, as soon as June. June. Right, Eric? Yeah. 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 I think a lot of a lot of investors are saying, we're not going to believe anybody but Yellen. Like, they want to hear it from Yellen. Right. And I think that's a big reason why you get all these Fed speakers saying, you know, a June hike is on the table and the market's not moving. And right. they, they're not going to, you know, really believe it until Yellen says it herself. I have to say, I mean, I 
if I'm looking at the markets right now and I'm basically looking at what the dollar is doing to kind of make my, my big macro decisions, and that's based on what the Fed is going to do, I'm feeling pretty confident that the Fed is not going to turn very hawkish. <clears throat> Excuse me. I mean, I'm feeling actually very confident that the Fed is not going to turn hawkish. I, I mean, just look at it. I know they can say they all you – look, know, you have all these different Fed officials out there and they all have different opinions. And I know they all speak and you're right. Yellen is first among equals there certainly. But I mean, what are the odds that the Fed's going to turn hawkish at this point? I mean, look at the, – the data is mediocre at best. The economy is mediocre. Corporate profits stink. I, really, the Fed's going to turn hawkish? Well, well you I know, mean, I think – sorry to interrupt, uh-huh. but at, at the beginning you – know, to your point, when we started the year – Everybody had the same point of view, except it was the other way around. Like the Fed just raised interest right. rates. Of course, they're going to do it again soon because they set four hikes. So, but in a matter of weeks, that changed, and there's nothing that uh, will prevent it from changing the other way. It's not going to happen in a day, but it could happen in a matter of four weeks, six weeks, two months, whatever. Mm-hmm. I was just going to go on the sort of notion too that the you know it's either dovish or hawkish. I mean, the Fed is you know there's a there's a there's a lot of gray between those two. Um, you know, in, in terms of the Fed moving, I mean, you don't have to be it does you know it doesn't have to go hawkish just to right. raise interest rates once or you know sort of twice. The real question is how much with. Everything that's sort of going on is one or two hikes really going to impact the dollar all that much? Yes. Excellent question. Uh, I want to get both your thoughts on that, and then we'll take a break. So, but oh, you want okay? <laughs> well, 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 both either, which you know. Yeah, yeah I mean, or- I mean, I think that even if it is just one rate increase or two, I think it will, you know, revive revive the dollar because if you look at you know the dollar's major peers, the ECB, the Bank of Japan, they are in negative rates, and it's going to be a long time until they can, you know, resume with trying to go back to normalization to get interest rates out of negative rates. It's going to be a long time. So there is this divergence play where the with the Fed tightening and ECB and BOJ remaining very low, that will be very good for the dollar. I agree with Chelsea, and I'd also like to add that it also depends a lot on how investors are positioned. If investors are positioned for more increases, then maybe it's already, it would, you could already say it's in the dollar. If investors are positioned for the opposite thing to happen, as they are right now, then yeah, it could have a very noticeable effect on the dollar. And another point is that when people, when you said there's a lot of gray area, I think you're absolutely right there. And, you know, a a point that a lot of uh, people have been making is that the Fed may be dovish in relation to past tightening cycles, but they could in fact turn out to be more hawkish than investors think they will be. That, that's a very good point. Which wouldn't be difficult. I mean, right, if you look right. at if you look at you know the regulatory data that they put out every week showing what speculators like hedge funds are doing with their currency bets, they're at their they've recently turned bearish on the dollar for the first time since 2014, and they just keep adding to those short right. bets on the dollar. And, that, and, and and getting to Ira's point too, I mean, we just have to also remember the taper tantrum. Where, you right. know, you just, the Fed, you know, Bernanke sure. spoke in front of Congress and caught all these, you know, sort of right, traders right, off right. guard. Right. All right. Uh, Ira Yosebashvili. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> uh, Chelsea Delaney, abreast of the market. It is in today's paper and online. Everyone should go read it. Thanks, both you guys.
Thank you. We'll, we'll, we will be back right after these messages. We're not done. <laughs> I'm Veronica Dagger, and I want to retire rich. How about you? Then listen to the Watching Your Wealth podcast. We'll help you get there. For more information, check us out at wsj.com slash podcast and find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and now Spotify. This is Money Beat from the Wall Street Journal. Now from our studios in New York, here are Paul Vigna and Stephen Grosser. This is, this is this is literally the worst part about this music. I like that. I like that bumper music. I'm into it. It's I bouncy. Know. It's jo- It's got a nice beat. It makes you want to hear about the markets. I think, right? It's certainly. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, yeah, I, I kind I, of. It kind of makes me a little bit more relaxed and chill. Yeah, but is that bullish music or is I, that bearish music? Is that well, is that no, the markets is, going up music? Exactly, or, exactly. I kind of feel like it's you know it's like a nice sort of. See, we need to Hanging discuss this. Okay, so, so what we have now, folks, is we have Aaron Lucchetti and John Carney who have swapped in for Chelsea and Ira. And before we get to what we're going to talk about, which is Lending Club, which is very important, let's discuss quickly the bumper music. Because, Tanya, we've had a couple of different options on this, right? Right. Now, I like that what we just heard. And everyone, everyone listening, if you want to uh, tell us on Twitter, at WSJ Podcast, or me, at Paul Vigna, when we decide what the WSJ Money Beat Podcast bumper music is going to be. But that's going to have to save uh, save itself for another day. Is are you guys going to promise to do it based on the Twitter voting? Or are you going to, like, no. there, are you guys super delegates? No, 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 the, no, no this, the is, this is not a democracy. We, we will, this we, is a, uh, no, we promise to do it. We promise <laughs> to do it based on the Twitter voting, as long as the Twitter voting agrees with, agrees with the ones that we want. Which uh, is that bouncy music? I really like that. Well, one of the options be Paul, you singing the bumper music. Yes, an acapella with me. That really, I yeah. think that really weighs it down. That <laughs> I mean, it's sort of an anchor on that. Nobody, I, I have nobody to say, will vote for that. If if Money Beat became an acapella group, it should keep the name Money Beat. It's actually a oh, perfect name John for an acapella Carney, group. You're right, Money Beat. Oh, this is so great. All right, here we are at the Money Beat Acapella Group podcast. Gentlemen, uh, big news in the market today. Uh, the big corporate news, really, big story's got to be this lending club story, right? Uh, Lucetti, why don't you j- just give us the, the basics of what happened here? Right. So this morning, uh, Lending Club, the largest online uh, lender um, specializing in consumer loans, uh, went public in 2014, big um, rising star in the finance world and in the tech world, abruptly announced its departure of a CEO, Renaud Laplanche, who founded the company 10 years ago and was um, thought to be one of the sort of the um, the big stars of the space. And he's out um, after a loan review, uh, a big kind of burgeoning scandal at the company, not over a huge amount of money, but $22 million in loans were sold to an investor, uh, and that didn't meet the investor's explicit instructions. And so that's a big no-no in the lending world. And um, well, what exactly, I mean, what I, I can gather that that had to be something very bad for the CEO to be ousted over it. But I mean, what, what exactly does that mean? Why is that so awful? A lending review on its own doesn't sound so terrible. A small amount of mis- why is this such a big deal? Well, this is a company like many financial companies built on trust, and so their algorithms and their efficiency and all the techie things they do to make things faster and cheaper are sort of layered over that foundation of trust, which is uh, in every financial transaction, an investor wants a particular thing, they want a particular yield, they want certain types of loans, and they go to Lending Club, which has this big super 
supermarket of loans and mm-hmm. says, okay, I want this one, this one, and this one, and Lending Club is supposed to make that happen um, smoothly. And so if they sell uh, an investor loans and the investor gets what they don't want, uh, it's a big problem. Um, in this case, it wasn't a huge financial hit for the investor. They caught it fairly early, but because they do so many transactions over and over again, uh, if that's not going smoothly, it's sort of the first thing they need to get right. Well, An analogy I wanted to use just to illustrate this is imagine if you ordered a computer from, you know, a from a shop and they told you that they're going to put, you know, the the latest chips in it and and a great graphics card and you got the computer and noted and then found out, hey, wait a minute. The graphics card didn't come in and it was supposed to. And if you started to – if you alerted the company about that, they would have to then take a review of, wait, are, are the graphics cards going out in all of them or was this just you know one bad computer shipment? Mm-hmm. Right. And that's the question this raises. Uh, the investor had said, I want loans with this criteria. Uh, Lending Club said, here, you're going to get the loan with that criteria. Charge them the money. And then Lending Club had to go and buy it back because the loans didn't fit the criteria and information had been changed about the loans. So it doesn't seem like this was just some sort of innocent error. And is the issue beyond that they were selling loans to – they were lending money to people based on these – how you would go in, right? But they were also repackaging the loans. That's what you're really talking about, right? They were selling the loans to another investor. Right. That's Which right. sounds like what they used to do back before the crash. Right. Unlike a bank, uh, Lending Club doesn't keep many or any loans on its own balance sheet. So if it lends you money for a consumer loan, $15,000, $30,000, mm-hmm. it's not taking that risk. It's it's taking momentary risk, but it's then passing it along to an right. investor. And the whole model is kind of pr- premised on the investor uh, getting what he wants and being able to kind of pick and choose. Um, you know, John had a great analogy. Another one would be, if you were um, in the restaurant business and a customer said, you know, I have certain allergies, or maybe they didn't say why they didn't want a particular ingredient, but they want to make sure the special of the day doesn't have any peanuts in it, and then you say, yeah, it's fine, and then you give it to them, that could be a serious problem. So for Lending Club, it's an even bigger issue because they have so many loans outstanding uh, that they've sold. These loans last, you know, five years, 10 years in some cases. If you've bought a Lending Club loan in the last five or 10 years and you had certain things that you wanted to avoid, you'll double-check that and you'll want the company to double-check that because it's not always super transparent what you're getting right away or it's in the fine print and you need to go back and check it. And as you said, is the business built on trust? And if investors don't feel that they can trust the company to give them, to sell them what they have specified, it becomes very, very hard for this company to live because they need uh, people to say, if I tell you I want, you know, loans with, you know, made to this quality of uh, borrower and, you know, with this kind of interest rate and you give me something else. Uh, and that's a problem, and it, that can really rapidly erode uh, trust. We saw similar things also with, um, with in the mortgage world, where banks were packaging uh, mortgages that they said had certain mortgage-backed securities that they said had certain kinds of criteria and did not. Right. They ended up having to buy billions and billions of those back from Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. This, uh, you know, this is a much smaller scale. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is it is a similar situation where the the person buying the loan didn't get what they want, and if if people lose faith that they're going to get that, it becomes very difficult to run this kind of business. No doubt. Well, and, and the other thing to point out that's important is that this was a why would they do this now, or why would this happen now, uh, assuming it was intentional. It is a very difficult environment for these online lenders. Um, 
in January and February, especially because of the market uh, backing up and, and, and sort of the stocks falling sharply, uh, volatility spiking. People were nervous about these consumer loans, and a lot of investors said, ah, you know, we're going to take a break. That puts a lot of pressure on a company like Lending Club to keep the wheels turning and to keep the loans moving. And what I was going to get to is exactly sort of plays off your point, which these companies have now been reporting results. How have their results come in, um, in the, for the first quarter? They were challenged. On deck, the big consumer and small business lender had poor results. Even Square, which is Jack Dorsey's company, the head of Twitter, um, mostly doing payments, but they want to get in the lending business as well. They thought, you know, this might be a good entry point as people are struggling. Their business is also growing more slowly than expected. The investors have huge power over this. If they don't want to buy these loans for a couple of months because they're nervous about the macro environment, which is what happened, I mean, this, that's a big this, problem. Th- this sounds like a miniature version of what happened before the financial crisis, where you had an entity it's the, it's the making short. loans. Right, right, right. <laughs> you had an entity making loans, selling the loans to somebody else. The whole business model worked, and it looked great as long as the economy was was cooperating. And as soon as, soon as things turn a little bit cold, and that engine can't quite keep uh, the revolutions going at the same RPM, the whole thing freezes up. I, I wrote a column about this for Heard on the Street, um, saying that one of the big risks in this business model is uh, the investors, the people buying the loans, stepping back. This business does not work if there are not if there's not a hungry appetite in the market to buy these loans, and that can go away for a number of reasons. It can go away because of nervousness about the overall economy. But it can also go away because of various company-specific reasons if you lose investors' trust, which is why I think the company had to act so quickly once mm-hmm. they found out about this and let go you know, the top guy. One question, though, is how important was the CEO to this business? He was the founder. He's been there all along. He presumably is the guy who holds a lot of the relationships with the investors. And we don't really know. It's hard to tell how robust the sales force is at this company. Well, the other question I, I want to get into is how do you grow this business then? I mean, if it's a business that is going to be very sort of secular – could have company specific the the demand could dry up i mean from you know investors how do you grow this yeah the main play and it's a great question the main play is to take more business from the banks the banks that don't want to deal with smaller balances and smaller customers anymore the banks that are regulated more heavily now they're going to get more of that business now what we're seeing though is that they aren't just tech companies they are also affected by concerns about the economy they are also affected by rising interest rates they are financial tech companies. They're not just tech companies. So even if they come along with a better mousetrap to capture loans, they are part of the same economy. And if the economy rises and falls, they also rise and fall. And, and, what, and is there any regulatory risk, too, to these companies as they grow and get bigger? Uh, when Because you, know, you look at something like this, and this is something that, you know, if I'm a regulator, this has to be sending, you know. Yeah, one of the questions we're, we're looking at right now as the story unfolds is which regulator comes to this issue first and most aggressively because in the last three months, a whole series of regulators have come out and made speeches about how they need to be more vigilant on online lending and fintech financial technology from the SEC to the Fed to the OCC and the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. They're all looking at this very closely. So it could be a, a very big regulatory issue, both this case specifically and more broadly what it 
what it unleashes from and, the regulators. And that could raise significant costs for these peer-to-peer lenders. I know the SEC and the FDIC are both very interested in this. We've, we've heard from, regula- from regulators on both sides of that. But also because the investors are companies that are regulated by the FDIC and the uh, SEC. So, in other words, you have, like, you have securities firms that are buyers of these right. loans. Right. And if you're defrauding a securities firm, you're going to attract the attention of... Uh, yeah. And that was exactly who the investor was, right? Uh, the investor was Jefferies, which is a big Wall Street firm, um, and they were handling lending club securitization. So this is also an interesting point. Hmm. They, you know, to John's point, that you need to really have these investors, <clears throat> the investors' demand kind of nailed down. Lending club had been working to expand the types of investors they sell to, so they had a lot of times just sold directly to institutionals investors they had relationships with. This was a deal to go to Wall Street and have them find even more investors to kind of broaden it out further, diversify their investor base. Uh, and this is their first deal in that space. And so it's a big problem when it ends up like this because oh. Jeffries, which was handling the deal, was the one who was affected. They sent the loans back to Lending Club, and so they're going to have to move on from there. But the other thing I would note that, that is interesting about this company that elevates it is so many big financial types have jumped into this company. Uh, Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary, Terry is on the board. Mm-hmm. John Mack, the former head of Morgan Stanley, is on the board. Mary Meeker, the internet analyst extraordinaire, now a venture capitalist, is on the board. This has a lot of smart, experienced people who now have to figure out what's next. You know, and to that end, Aaron, you know, one of the things that your group writes about a lot now is, is fintech, you know, lending, this, this lending club. They're one of the biggest names in this whole thing. Does this start to... Does this put a little Kessel Paul on that entire sector, the fintech thing? It was all hot and nice, and everybody was excited about it. Does, it, does, does this have ramifications beyond the company? It, it does. I mean, the, the sector right now is under pressure, um, and it only continues when the biggest player in the space uh, has an announcement yeah. like this and sends the CEO packing. I, I just want to say, we saw at the, the private label security market totally get eviscerated. It has never come back for mortgage-backed securities um, because of the financial crisis. This was a nascent beginning market. If it turns out that this is more widespread than just you know a single incident, um, it could sap the, the confidence in this market altogether, even before it takes off. So it, it is possible for these things to get totally wiped out, yeah. um, and it, we've seen it in the past. With wow. real ramifications, too, for consumers. I mean, a lot of consumers who couldn't get a loan from the big bank turned to Lending Club, yep. turned mm-hmm. to companies like this to uh, to get their credit cards consolidated or to build a new On a bullish note, maybe it's good for somebody like Square, right? The big competition gets in trouble, and you're Jack Dorsey. You're like... Hey, uh, people, tr- you know, people like me. They trust me with Twitter. Maybe, uh, you know, I can I can go capture that business. <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah, Jack or somebody. All right, uh, John Carney, Aaron Lucchetti, Stephen Grosser, Paul Vina. Want to thank you all for tuning in to the Money Beat podcast. Look for our eponymous LP will be coming out from Island, available at Tower Records, and uh, look for us in your town soon. We'll be at all the clubs and on the local uh, drinking establishments. No, I'm kidding. We're not. But if we put out an album. Let me tell you, it'd be good. Oh, it'd be so good. The All Money right. Beat uh, listen, tune in later this week. We are going to do the Money Beat Bumper Podcast Contest. That is going to happen. So come back and check us out later. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously. The Claude 3 Model Family by Anthropic is your one-stop shop for enterprise AI. 
Haiku is lightning fast and cost effective. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between skills and speed. And Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Learn more at anthropic.com slash Claude.